1: Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline, presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, This is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on all the things that matter, life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. It's been so great reading all of your emails and please keep them coming to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. My only regret is that I can't answer all of them on the podcast but I have some exciting news coming in regards to that so please listen out. In the meantime, I'm thrilled that the Hotline has been featured on the homepage of Apple Podcasts. So if you've come here from there, welcome. I love you and I believe in you. Each week on the Hotline, I'm joined by a very special guest who brings their own brand of Big Sister Expertise to help answer your dilemmas, conundrums, and straight-up anxieties about life. And this week, I couldn't be more excited to welcome M. Raz, the straight shooting, darn tootin', cool bitch behind the legendary Twitter account Feminist Next Door. In her short but stratospheric time on Twitter, emma has been essential to breaking down feminist topics for her almost 210,000 followers. She's delivered succinct and hard-hitting insights on rape culture, patriarchy and men's violence against women. And like so many incredible women are so skilled at, she's done it with biting good humour and cutting-edge satire. Em joins me now from her home base in New York, where she, like the rest of the world, has been isolating in her apartment. Em, it is so exciting to talk to you. Yes, of course. I'm so glad to be here. What's it like in New York at the moment? Because Australia has kind of had a very different response to the coronavirus than America in general, mainly because your commander-in-chief is a fucking lunatic. (laughs)
0: Lunatic, infant, you know, either way, yeah. Um, But it has been... uh, obviously, fairly surreal to be here. Um, and where I live um, in New York City, obviously, the epicenter of the American outbreak. And then where I live in New York City is the epicenter of the New York outbreak. So um, it has been pretty crazy around here. Um, but I'm I'm still kicking. So it's all I can ask.
1: Mm. I did a, um, a an Instagram live a few weeks ago where I was talking with a women's health sector worker here about the you know, some of the unspoken consequences of a pandemic like this and forced isolation, particularly for women. Uh, Has this been something that's been concerning to you as well? I mean, I want to talk to you in a minute about the way that you use Twitter to have feminist conversations and to kind of pass feminist ideas onto people. But I think maybe a lot of people aren't really thinking about the impact that this has on women who are already experiencing men's violence in the home or um, for whom isolation is a more terrifying prospect than anyone can even imagine?
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's sort of a spectrum of ways that women experience this differently. I think what is at the the top of everyone's mind – uh, and especially in the world of feminism is certainly what we know to be an increase in the level of domestic violence we know this based on police reporting but we also know this because we just know how this goes right mm. i mean you put people in a situation where um potentially the most dangerous place for them the place that they escape from to go to work every day or to go out with friends um is no those are no longer options mm. and not only that but you add the the increased stress of the situation, potential unemployment, uh, the presence of kids in the home constantly now. Mm. Um, there's not a, there all of those typical available release valves are not there mm. um, for that situation. So it's sort of a, a dangerous mixture uh, in terms of what we know will be and is an inevitable uptick. But I think what is frustrating is that even the people who recognize this treat it as exactly that. It's just—it's an inevitable uptick. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that happens to women, and it's such a shame. And and how sad this is. The reality is, um, there is no one who has put forth any sort of initiative to, like, for instance, increase penalties for domestic violence during the time of the coronavirus um, added as a sentencing enhancement or a charging enhancement um, to address the need to buckle down on this issue. Um, there's been, you know, and it's not lost on me that there's a lot going on right now in terms of leadership, but it just, it just seems to me that for those who even do recognize it, um, and that's in leadership and just in the community in general. The response tends to be, oh, wow, that just really is scary. Oh, that's just such a shame. Um,
1: it's awful, and- isn't it? It's, but it's an awful thing that kind of happens in an externalised way. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned before that the kind of whataboutery and the derailment that often accompanies discussions like this. Oh, well, women do it too. And, of course, yes, women can be guilty of perpetrating uh, domestic violence and domestic abuse, but it's a mistake to – and it's just factually incorrect to try and position those things as being of equal and opposite um, weight. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, men can be victimised by domestic abuse, but it, it it's not necessarily true that it's an equal and opposite force. You know, men are often victimised by Absolutely. other men in the home. Um mm-hmm. and I always find with me I, I don't know if your response is similar but you know a lot of the men who want to kind of disrupt conversations that you're trying to have about the very real problem of men's violence against women do want to derail to discuss you know the women who they feel are guilty of it too And they cite, you know, they say things like, oh, well, all violence is bad or, you know, men are victims too. And you think, yeah, okay, cool. Let's have a conversation about how men are victimized by violence because the biggest risk to men is from other men in public Mm -hmm. spaces. So let's have a conversation about toxic masculinity and patriarchy and um, the ways in which men are denied through conditioning and socialization, effective, adequate and healthy means of expressing their emotions and their feelings. Let's have that conversation. Oh no, no, no. They don't want to have that conversation, do they?
0: I mean, I think the reality of the conversation too is that not only we're not only talking about physical force, when we're talking about there is not equal and opposite reaction. I mean, we know it to be true in terms of and by this I mean factually correct that um the level of violence that is perpetrated against women and this is in some ways potentially because of, of biological size differences and in other ways very much, um, based on the socialization toward violence, but it is significantly greater. I mean, you're talking about, you know, more than 50% of homicides Mm. that occur, uh, of women occur in the home by someone that they know, um, and, uh, and, and, and have a familial relationship with, whether it's, um, romantic or, you know, actually uh, direct line familial so we know this to be true we know that these statistics for men are something like uh 10 to 12 percent in the other direction um but more importantly there's this uh in in derailment settings there's this um need to ignore or to to overshadow what is a very real difference in a power dynamic you know there is absolutely a time where if if you are committing assault on your significant other and you're a woman and they are a man or you're two women or whatever that is always wrong that's a true statement but the difference is that you are not doing so with the authority of your society Hmm. Um, you are not doing so with the full weight of all of the mechanisms that will protect you and all of the socialization that says that you are entitled at least to some degree of this, you know, people always say, well, everyone knows that that domestic violence is bad. Well, I don't think everyone knows that because a lot of people are beating their wives and their girlfriends and their daughters. So, you know, there is absolutely an undertone in society that if you cause, if you are a woman and you do X, Y, Z, you have brought this upon yourself, or if you stay, you have brought this upon yourself. There's always a level of culpability there for women that will never be there. For male victims of domestic, domestic violence, and, and again, that's not a minimization, but it's just a fact.
1: And I think that the the same is true as well in terms of how people are willing to define those things. The same is true for sexual assault and sexual violence, and this is a big part of rape culture, which so many people refuse to believe is a real thing. Um, that it's, I think, people who say things like, "Well, everyone knows domestic abuse is bad," genuinely believe that to be true, but what they're not Recognizing or even admitting to is that people can think that, but they can also maintain their own control over what they are willing to define as those things. Exactly. so, you know, they think of, you know, in regards to sexual violence, and I know that you tweet a lot about rape culture and the impact of sexual violence on women's lives and the refusal of people to um, recognize those power dynamics. But uh, my observation has been that the reason people are so unwilling to have those – to have really honest discussions about sexual violence and what it looks like is because they don't want to see themselves in any of that behaviour. So they externalise mm-hmm. the behaviour and say, well, you know, real rape. Real rape is something that happens, um, you know, in public, uh, in, down dark alleyways when women have obviously made poor choices, but, you know, obviously that's what they say. That's not what I think. Um And it's perpetrated by monsters, men who live in the walls and kind of peel out in the middle of the night, not men that we know, certainly no men that we Mm -hmm. love. That can never be real sexual violence. So it has to be something else. It has to be women being, uh, you know, ridiculous or overreacting or regretting their own choices um, or deliberately trying to destroy a man's life because, of course, we all know that rape allegations destroy men's lives. What's that tweet that initially made you so popular about Bill Cosby? Let me just uh, pull that up and read that so that everyone can appreciate your satirical genius. Can you name all 59 women who came forward against Cosby? Can you name half of them? Can you name five? Would you recognise them out of context? Do you want an autograph? Cool. So we agree that women don't make rape accusations to become famous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think think you hit the nail on the head in terms of where... Folks tend to draw the line for themselves personally when they say, I'm not part of the problem, or when they become affronted, um, when they are confronted with the reality that that is probably not true, at least to some extent. Um, There is a desire to frame violence as something that occurs intended as violence Hmm. um, and not, not applicable if it's not. So it's, it's a centering of the entire experience on what the perpetrator intended to happen and not what did happen. Mm. Um, so you have uh, this and what is driven typically by a desire to at all costs ensure that no one is penalized unjustly. And by no one, I mean men are not penalized unjustly. Um, and so if I didn't intend to harm you, it doesn't matter if I did harm you uh, because I didn't intend to harm yeah. you. And, and this is um, this is why you see um, such a intense desire to add culpability in conversations about uh, sexual violence to say, well, you should have known this, or you should have done this, or did you, you know, there's, there's sort of a series of common questions that I think are mm-hmm. attributed to uh, any allegation of sexual violence. And it's impossible to imagine any other recounting of an experience of harm that plays out in that way, where every time someone's, you know, raises the prospect of them having been harmed In some way, that it is immediately followed by a predictable sequence of culpability adders Mm. um, that need to be cleared in order for you to be viable in the conversation.
1: The circles that people will run to try and make, you know, try and tie those things together to make it okay the way that they think is truly astonishing. But I always think as well that, um, you know, feminists like you and me who, speak very openly and forcefully about these issues. One of the mechanisms of backlash that we receive is, um, well, you're just trying to – all you feminists are the same. You're just trying to paint all men as rapists. And my response to that is always, no, we believe that men can be better and that they've demonstrated Uh themselves to be better and that many men in the world demonstrate themselves to be better because there's nothing that – there's nothing actually that makes the argument – that all men are rapists more than people saying, "Well, what did she expect? What was she wearing? Why was she mm-hmm. drinking with him? Uh, why did she go home with him? Um, why did she go to his room, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. All of those people who make those arguments are really saying that men deep down are all just looking for an opportunity and they can't help themselves Absolutely. when they're presented with it. So what does that say about? the difference between men and their abilities to be able to make good moral choices. I also think that, um, you know, when Brock Turner, uh, when the Brock Turner uh, trial happened, and it seemed to me that even though he had his defenders and there were people definitely who thought that, um, you know, who who brought out the same kind of victim-blaming rhetoric and, you know, stop, stop forcing men to be accountable for their actions kind of nonsense, it seemed to me that... It was unusual that so many people were publicly on the side of um, Chanel Miller, who's so incredibly brave and amazing and so graceful in her response. But after I thought about it for a bit, I realised, or my theory about that is that one of the reasons why people were so willing to uh, take, um, take the correct position in that situation was not just because of her incredibly articulate and profoundly... Uh, persuasive piece that she wrote for BuzzFeed, the victim impact statement, sorry, that she published in BuzzFeed, but because there were two male witnesses to the crime who intervened. And I feel like that is key because when men, broadly speaking, are so used to seeing themselves centred in any kind of narrative, one of the reasons I think that they get so hostile when you're talking about rape culture and sexual violence is because if there's only a rapist in the story – they cannot help but believe that you're talking about them because they're so used to always being included in the story. And so that's why they say things like, well, why don't you talk about the good men who would never tolerate this? Because then they can identify with those good men. And in the circumstances uh, where you know, with Brock Turner, the two Swedish bicyclists or two Swedish cyclists who came past presented a narrative for anyone watching where they could go, well, in that situation, I'd be the cyclist. That's why yeah. this isn't confronting to me because I feel like this is giving me an avenue in which I could, I can imagine myself to be the hero.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is the difference between having a conversation about, uh, you know, slavery in the United States and having a conversation about the genocide of American Indians. Right. Because if you're talking about a situation and bear with me, this comparison makes sense. Trust me. Um, If you're talking about a situation there was a, a section of society that said slavery was is wrong and they were helping slaves escape and there was an underground railroad. There's always these folks that would say, Well, I would have been those people. You can listen to the story of the abolitionists and say, I would have been one of those people. I would have hosted folks in the Underground Railroad. I would have been on that on the right side of this argument. But the there are no people like that in the story of the genocide of american indians everyone participated no one saw it as wrong and that continued to almost to the complete extermination of our indigenous population and so people just cannot get behind that concept as something that is worth talking about or is something that is having serious effects today um, i think people will will be much quicker to Um, discuss what the failings of American tribal systems are than they are to discuss how we got there. And so I agree completely that it's human nature to say, I want to find myself in the hero. And if there's no hero in this story, then you must just be saying that everyone is bad. Mm. And in some cases, everyone is kind of bad in the sense that either they're perpetrating or they're not speaking up. Um, maybe maybe for lack of, of information or knowledge or, or socialization or whatever. But um, I, I think there is certainly um, a, a very serious defensive tone. And, and the thing about the Brock Turner story is you're 100% right that the fact that there are two male cyclists involved creates a safety space for men in that story. But the other thing is that story played out exactly how our society wants to portray what rape is. It occurred outdoors, behind a dumpster. Um, it was forceful. She was injured. It was visible. There was evidence. She, you know, she immediately went to the police. Um, she is uh, you know, a credible person. You know, she's, not a, she's not a sex worker. And more importantly, she's not a friend of Brock Turner's. Because if you are friends with a man, somehow that automatically makes it more likely that he will assault you and less likely that you shouldn't have expected
1: it. Mm-hmm. Well, that You must have done something to invite it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's something that, A lot of men really struggle to understand and it's part of why they're so you know at best reluctant and at worst hostile to actually listening to women when we talk about these and we have a question about this coming up you know later on in the in the show um but I think that people make the mistake so often regardless of whether or not you're talking about gender equality or racism or whatever uh you know the circumstance might be where someone can someone likes to value themselves as being in a position of moral authority, that people make the mistake of thinking that the opposite of bad is good. So if you're not uh-huh. an overtly bad person, then you must be a good person. But very few people realise that actually in most cases the opposite of good is just neutral. Uh-huh. So most people are neutral in the face of oppression or in the face of violence. Um Certainly a lot of men don't put themselves on the line to speak up about it in the way that women do. And I can't think of many men who experience the level of backlash that someone like you do on the internet for for, you know, getting out there every day and kind of rolling your sleeves up and scrabbling about in the muck. You know, when men speak about feminism, they're praised. They might get a, a little bit of backlash from men calling them white knights and cucks or whatever, but that's just patriarchy in action. But they're certainly not threatened in the same way that women are. I mean, I've always thought that it's really telling that if you're a conservative politician who's a man, you can – it's a it's a vote winner for you to go out and talk about how much you love women and how much of a feminist you are. And it's definitely a vote yeah. killer and a boner killer if you're a woman who does the same. So, you know, female politicians have to be extra specially careful about how much – how perceptible their allegiance to women is because you know obviously regardless of what people's feelings are about Hillary Clinton or you know most recently Elizabeth Warren who I know you're a big fan of um those women have to be extremely careful that they aren't seen as you know that they're not seen as being too aligned to the interests of women whereas men mm-hmm. it's just assumed can be aligned to the interests of men because the interests of men are of course the interests of humans
0: Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. The, the, the idea is that the interests of men are the interests of society, and the interests of women are special. Hmm. And you are already suspect as potentially having sympathies toward this set of interests that are deviating from the societal interest. Um, and so if you... Acknowledge, you know, your desire to uh, prioritize it, uh, women, what are characterized as women's issues, of course, which is funny in of itself. Um, if you want to prioritize some women's issues, um, you are bordering on traitorous, right? It, it's like saying I'm a Catholic first and an American second. You know, you can't say stuff like that in America. You can't say I'm a feminist first and an American second because people view those things as dichotomous. Yeah. Um, and so it, if you're a man who wants to prioritize some some women's issues, it's understood that you are being helpful, but not that you are being traitorous. Yeah. Um, well, because and that people... Is,
1: people always privately or even unconsciously recognize that they don't have to fear that men will betray them. As you say, you know, it's traitorous. They don't have to fear that men will make their issues secondary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But women women of course represent women first, always. Unless they yeah. unless they do their dutiful part by putting their hand up and you know being the cool girl and aspiring to be the official woman in the room.
0: Absolutely. To, to say, to, to be the woman who says, I, as a woman, don't think this is a problem.
1: I've never and experienced so sexism sh- in my life.
0: I, I agree with you all. You know, I can say firsthand that this is not actually a real issue. Mm.
1: Yeah, which then gives men license. So the men who, for whom that is extremely important as well, men, gives them license to turn around, as again I know that you would have had so much experience of this because I have, um, to turn around and say, well, I've asked my wife and my sisters and my daughters and they all think (laughs) that feminism is nonsense and none of them have experienced any oppression or discrimination at work. And, you know, my wife and I do everything equally around the house and I always think I'd really love to talk to your wife about that.
0: Right, Or, or what do you think that, like, let's try this a different way. Uh, Based on simply based on your reaction here, um, what do you think would have happened in the conversation if they had given you a different answer? And do you think that that potentially creates an incentive for them to not give you that answer, or even to not want to have that answer to genuinely not want to have that answer?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that it's, it's certainly true that the way that men and women navigate patriarchy is very different and men have a lot to fear from patriarchy but the ways in which they'll be punished by it for not conforming are also different to the ways that women will. So women make choices and decisions um, in terms of how they minimise harm to themselves and they may not even be consciously aware of what those choices are but those choices are definitely in play.
0: Absolutely.
1: Anyway… Mm-hmm. On that note, let's get to some questions from our beautiful little sister listeners. Please note... Also, my disclaimer, in very big flashing lights, that neither I nor Emraz are doctors, psychologists or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who are very good at annoying men on the internet. And I'd just like to issue a little content warning for this uh, episode in particular that um, it contains discussion of sexual assault and victim blaming as well. So please go gently with this. Body Shamed Rights. I'd like to ask you a question, and maybe you will give me a better insight on how to change my feelings about this because I'm really tired of being hurt. My long term partner of three years is unhappy with my body, tells me to diet, and body shames other women in front of me. When we first met, I was a size 10, and then after our daughter, I became a size 14 to 16. I feel conscious eating in front of him and wearing t shirts that my belly can be seen, and that makes me uncomfortable. He also doesn't eat very much and is happy being skinny and has anorexic attitudes. This has also affected our sex life because I feel he is afraid to touch my body. My question is this. How do I stop giving a fuck about what he thinks of my body? I do care, but I really don't want to. Emraz, Wow, that's
0: tough. I mean, I I have to start by saying to uh, this this listener, I'm so sorry uh, to hear that you're going through that because that is... um, just an incredibly hurtful situation to live in day in, day out. Um, And certainly one that I, and I'm sure lots and lots of other women have some experience with. Um, But I think I would start by saying that I don't think you should want to not give a fuck how your partner's treating you Um, because that's what this is about, right? I mean, this isn't about whether you care what you look like or should care what you look like. This is about, the way that your partner's treating you as it, as another human being, a human being that they are in a relationship with, so um, it shouldn't have to be the case that you have to uh, create an emotional wall around this issue in order to maintain, uh, you know, your emotional well being with this person. So, that, to me, I think the, the question, um, while totally understandable, is, is wrong. It, it should be, you know how do I stop my partner from emotionally abusing me uh, over something that is hurtful to me in in a way that they are very cognizant, knowingly doing?
1: I think that that's very uh, sage advice. And I would also add to it that, um, you know, oftentimes we make, and it's understandable why, we make excuses for our partners uh, because we have complicated interactions and complicated relationships when it comes to complicated relationships with the very act of loving somebody. But I, I think sometimes it can be helpful to ask the simple question of how you would respond if a friend was treating you like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not an easy cut and dried kind of thing where you would say, well, if, I'd, I'd tell a friend to stop or I'd stop seeing them and therefore I'm going to break up with my husband or my partner. It's not as simple as that. We know that. But we do accept treatment from our romantic partners that we would never tolerate from our friends necessarily. Um, And and it's important, as you say, to kind of drill down into why that is. And I I like your words about not – what does it mean to not give a fuck about what your partner thinks of you? Because essentially what you're saying is how do I erect a barrier around myself, a protective mechanism that shields me from – the disdain of the person that I'm choosing to spend my life with and share a bed with. And in this woman's case, have had a child with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's, there's obviously a component here that feminism is involved. I mean, feminism is involved in everything, but there's a feminism heavy component here where we can talk about why it is that his words about physical appearance may have, a different impact on her than they would have if, if this, this conversation were occurring in reverse. And I will say that with the caveat that I, I saw that she used the word anorexic and if it is the case that, um, you know, he has act genuinely, um, disordered thinking about eating, then, you know, there is a part of this conversation that dives into like, there's needs to be counseling involved. And, mm-hmm. and I think, um, we should be cognizant of that and the ways that people who themselves are suffering, may act act out in disordered ways but i think in this case there this is something that is in most cases chosen specifically because of its impact on women Hmm. so women are much less likely to be accepted if they don't suit the cultural norms of what is acceptable for appearance than men are you know, men might be carefree or an academic, or um, you know, just generally forgettable looking, and no one really seems to have an issue with that. But uh, the appearance that you have as a woman is always part of your value as an individual. Yeah, you, know, you could be, in, you know, for instance, in my experience, you can be really, really good at your job professionally, um, and just an absolute ace. Um, but if you are not good looking or not well-dressed or not well put together, the effect that that has on people's perception of how good you are at your job Mm. is meaningful. You have to, um, you have to look like a successful woman you have to look like you are succeeding at being a woman and at your role. Um, and so in this case, when you have someone who is closest to you demeaning you one in a way that they know has a significant impact on you but two is essentially saying not only are you less valuable to me because I don't like the way you look you are also less valuable in general Mm. and so this is why we see this as something part of domestic violence where you know there's very often a component of no one else wants you you aren't pretty you're fortunate to be with me because it's not just about Um, taking a snipe from the from his individual perspective it's taking a snipe at how valuable you are to the world
1: yeah I really appreciate you pointing out that in this particular situation there seems like there is something else going on in terms of his own uh perception of his body and his own disordered thinking around it and I agree that um counseling is is a uh an immediate and obvious first step. But as you say, this is also something that's completely gendered. And, you know, this, this woman is not the only woman who has gone through the experience, particularly, you know, either of her body changing in a relationship or her body changing particularly after childbirth and then being met with um, the derision and shaming of her partner who uh, is conforming to patriarchal expectations that she get her body back in shape. Um so that she can continue to flatter him with her existence, and I think that that's what a lot of it comes down to is that, as you correctly point out, I mean fat phobia is a prob a problem for all people, obviously fat men experience uh discrimination as well, but I would argue that fat men experience that discrimination in ways that are some sometimes subtly and sometimes overtly different to the way that fat women experience that discrimination because there's so many more, there's so many extra layers that are going on with women. And one of them is the expectation that women exist to decorate the world as a means of making men feel more powerful. Uh, I, and I, I say that because in my own experience with my own family, um. And it's complicated because a lot of times you can say, well, I love these people, but they have certain expectations of what women should look like and it, you know, if they're things that you've grown up with, they're very, very difficult to let go of and to unpack and to the extent that sometimes I think almost impossible and one of those is that um, the thing that women can do for men to make those men feel good about themselves is to be beautiful and pretty in a way that signal, signals to other men watching that they are powerful enough to be surrounded by such beauty.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think patriarchy teaches both men and women you know, important lessons. I say important in terms of for survival. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, you know, it teaches women that what is most important is that you are pleasing to men. And it teaches men that what is most important is that women want to be pleasing to them. Yes. So, so, you know, you have in all lots and lots of different ways, um, women being either actively attempting to please men in lots of ways or actively afraid of displeasing them. And you have men who are actively seeking women who are, in some cases, either submissive or deferential. But even if they aren't, very cognizant of the fact that if there are women who are ascribed of value in society who want to please them, that that is, that is valuable to them mm-hmm. and, and how they are perceived. Whereas uh, wanting a man wanting to please another man is actually viewed in the complete reverse. Uh, it's typically viewed as you know, sort of cowardly or, you know... You know, cooperation is is not highly valued on the patri- patriarchal chain. So it's sort of something that you do as a step to becoming more powerful, if it's allowable at all. But um, when it comes to women, you know, if you can demonstrate that women want to please you, um, that is one hundred percent a show of your your value as a man.
1: And it's also a tool that's used to discredit women as well. The easiest way in the world that. Um, well, certainly that men have learned to undermine and humiliate women and to shame them into silence is to attack our physical appearances. I mean, that's not (laughs) – that's so obvious and that's what every single woman, even the ones who say – even the ones who want to believe that they've never experienced any discrimination at the hands of men uh, Mm -hmm. because they fear the backlash that might come if they acknowledge that to be a truth. Even they've had an experience where a man has called them – ugly or um has this attitude because men don't like her or you know it it was a real turning point for me as a young woman when I realized that the most conventionally beautiful woman in the world who conforms in every single way to expectations about her physical appearance and her fuckability will be uh discredited and dismissed as some kind of like corpulent swamp swamp beast if she Mm -hmm. expresses an opinion that you know displeases whichever man is around to hear it
0: I I agree completely and one of the points that I think it is that you make in uh fight like a girl so there's there's my shameless uh plug on your behalf and also me down to you a little um is the idea that even when we make whether it's corporate attempts or um you know, genuine attempts even to normalize uh, the acceptance of women's bodies, it is still always framed in terms of whether it is acceptable to men. So it's men love curvy women or, you know, men love women of all shapes. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. I like a girl with a little little more uh, cushion on her or whatever. And that is why it's acceptable, not just because you're a human being and it's acceptable for you to be one in whatever shape you're in. Um, and so it's like, it it just, it's so deeply ingrained in the way we think about value.
1: Mm. So getting back to, uh, this particular situation with this woman, um, I'd like to say to her as well that, Oh God, I appreciate how complicated this is for you because it's not as simple as walking away, or it certainly wouldn't feel as simple to you as just walking away from, a relationship where it's just the two of you and he started to pick on you and make you feel bad about yourself and clearly feel insecure about the prospect of even having sex with each other um, which is a terrible situation to be in in a terrible uh, you know frame of mind to live in but clearly uh, you mentioned having had a daughter and you say your are long-term partner of three years. So this is this is all sort of fairly relatively recently. So you're not only dealing with this, but you're also parenting a, a small child. Um, regardless of what his own issues are with his own body, he is being a bad partner to you and he's being a bad father to your daughter because he's modelling behaviours that will undoubtedly have an impact on her, a deep impact on her later on. So the 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 unfortunate reality that you're faced with here is can this be fixed is he willing to get counseling for his own issues and is he willing to recognize the myriad ways in which he's hurt you and if he's not willing to do that are you willing to walk away for the sake if not if not for the sake of yourself certainly for the sake of your daughter
0: yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think um it is very much the way that we think about how important it is to be physically attractive as women that makes this feel like an issue that's different from any other issue in a relationship. You know, if he was perpetrating some other behavior that wasn't about your appearance, would you respond by saying, How do I teach myself not to care about this? Um yeah. and, and I would hope that. That you do di- not you didn't. and I think um, it's completely understandable that that would be your reaction because I suspect that you feel some personal guilt as though you have done something wrong by not maintaining an appearance that he's led you to believe he is owed from you. Um, and so you have sort of a, this back and forth of feelings like, well, I don't think it's right for him to be mean to me, but I kind of brought this on myself. And the answer to that is you have not brought on mistreatment to yourself. Mm. Um, And that's what this is. It's not different because uh, he has some, he is owed, you know, some degree of um, appearance from you. And if that's something that's important to him in a relationship, then you can have a conversation on that level. The same way you would have a conversation about it's important to me in a relationship that we have a group of friends that we go out with or that we don't. Uh, I'm a I'm a homebody, so I don't I don't uh, do well with in relationships with people who like to go out all the time. Mm-hmm. That's been a relationship issue. So you should treat it just like that, you know. If if it's an issue for him, fine, have the conversation. But it's not
1: different because it's appearance and you are not guilty of anything. Perfectly said. Um, The final thing I would end on for you is to remind yourself that you're allowed softness and you're allowed to be cared for, particularly in this vulnerable period of time. You've just had a baby and that does have an impact on your body. And I would hate for you to be out there thinking that, as Em says, that somehow you've let the side down or you've let him down when – what you need more than anything right now is care and support and tenderness. And I would say that to any woman listening, particularly any who's in this situation, that, you know, to, to shame a woman, particularly after she's had a baby, is a specific and fucked form of abuse and bullying. And question if this is the kind of person who you want to be giving your life to. This next question is quite uh, hard going. So if, if you are listening, just uh, this is where the particularly the trigger warning for discussion of sexual assault comes in. But I think it's an important one and I really want to get your take on it, M. Teenage Feminist writes, I'm 17 years old and have seen so many of my other friends experience similar stories and I really don't know what to do anymore. At the beginning of the year, at a party while I was blackout drunk and on drugs... A boy in my year took me into a room and tried to have sex with me, etc. During this his friends, who all I've all of whom I've grown up with, slid condoms under the door and watched through the window despite the fact that they knew I was super fucked up. At the time, I was too dead to notice and if I did, I probably wouldn't have been able to stop them. Uh, just a note, a side note as well that I don't really edit these letters. I spent the entire holidays following convincing myself that it wasn't a big deal and by the time I got to school I'd almost completely mentally suppressed the situation. However, once I was confronted with seeing him and his friends at school, I began finding myself having panic attacks regularly and leaving early most days or not coming in at all. The boy was in my maths class so I had to move down to the easy maths, even though I love maths, because I was constantly triggered being in a room with him and I couldn't concentrate. This boy, along with a number of others, used to make jokes about raping my friends and I in middle school while constantly degrading us. When asked for help from our head of middle school, he told us to learn to ignore it and never told them it wasn't okay. Now this same group of boys are crossing the lines of consent with no remorse. I chose to tell my favourite female teacher about all of this because I didn't want to see the same thing happening to younger girls at my school and she reacted incredibly well and gave me so much support which meant a lot. The school then organised the boys and girls in my year to be separated and talked to about consent, which gave me a lot of hope for change. However, after the talk, the only reaction that I heard from any of the boys was negative, saying things like, quote, they called us all rapists, I'm never touching a girl again, they didn't even let us say our side. Just to clarify, the boys and the girls received the same talk and all it was about was the rules of consent and the importance of being able to read more than a yes or a no. It was so disheartening to hear them all discredit something that it felt like it was impossible to summon the courage to ask for help with. So after that, my question for you is, when trying to fight for women to be protected, how do I stop the reaction of men and the perpetrators from deeply upsetting me or literally destroying me? I never want to allow a man to dictate how I feel, but in this case, it's so hard. Wow. Yeah.
0: Incredibly relatable.
1: Yeah, it makes me want to cry uh, just reading it out.
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, I mean, my first reaction would be to say, you know, I have incredible sympathy for you in your situation and I also have incredible empathy for it. Um, you know, this is relatable for me and my personal experience, but also I think just based on the thousands of stories that women have been generous to share with me, um, on Twitter and in personal conversations, I think it's sadly you know, almost ubiquitous in some ways. You know, at least to some degree, a conversation where all you are saying is, "You know, I've been harmed, or please don't harm me," is is met with, um, you know, a counter reaction that makes you feel culpable uh, for even having the conversation in the first place. Um, you know culpable for having been somehow you know disrespectful or um not prioritizing their feelings exactly um so i mean i guess i would start by saying as someone who has been a victim of sexual assault uh, i certainly have gotten a lot of backlash online um for speaking out about it and as the larger my audience has gotten the more i have had to ask myself this exact same question which is how can I personally deal with reading some of these responses and not just losing my shit, mm-hmm. not just going on Twitter and being like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You know, like, because again, even if that is honestly completely justified in some certain circumstances, I know that I have to operate in a world where if I do that, I will immediately discredit everything else that I have said because I will label myself as um, someone who is unreasonably uh, uh, violent or hateful toward men, and and that means I am not credible as a Mm. as an actor in the world. So I'm always cognizant of of trying to toe that line between being able to get through to the men that I that I do talk to on Twitter, and I feel like I have been able to have productive conversations with them. And by the way, I have received a lot of really good feedback, positive feedback from from men who do care. Um, and not try to like and not just absolutely break down sometimes from the things that people say and to feel as though I'm I'm never going to get anything except for just absolutely um, annihilated by the things that they're saying. So I say that mostly because What's important is that there is a way to move past it. Um, I know how it feels. And the most important thing is to realize that um, when you are receiving these reactions, they are not about you at all. They are about the person who is reacting to you. So whoever is reacting to you, whatever they're saying, is coming from a place of, of whatever they feel how they, um, how they interpret what you've said, how they interpret you know placing themselves in the story into your story, um, and whether they know you or not, it doesn't matter. Um, it is not about you at all. It's not about whether your story is true. It's not about whether what you're saying is valuable or correct. Um, it is about how they feel, and that is less important to you than how you feel.
1: There are a few things that struck me when I was reading this letter um, when it was initially sent to me and, you know, firstly in the very first line um, she mentions uh, he tried to have sex with me and I think it's really important that we name it for what it is and it's not sex, he tried to rape you and Mm you know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the ways in which um, men, men in particular but the ways in which society makes this so easy for us to sanitise the language around sexual assault so that we never have to confront and deal with the fact that the majority of it, the absolute vast majority of it, is perpetrated not only by men and boys who we know, but also by men and boys who have standing in their communities, who are loved by people and who have a multifaceted personality that means that some of the things they do are perceived as good and loving and kind. And this makes it so much more difficult for people to acknowledge or accept the fact that they can also do terrible things um, and that society has empowered them to do those terrible things because the the fact of the matter is that we live in a rape culture that does not care about women's autonomy and dignity and views us as vessels in which men can uh, make themselves more powerful. Um, So that was the initial thing that struck me and... Also I wanted to, to kind of touch on the fact that um you wrote that you quit maths, a subject that you love, because you couldn't deal with um being in the same room as him. And this is something that so many women, so many women, countless, countless women, you couldn't even count the number of women who've left things that they loved doing because they mm-hmm. were they were reminded that they didn't matter in those spaces, that what had been done to them and what they represented to the men around them was less than human. And I remember reading an incredible anonymous piece a few years ago by a young woman who quit swimming. She was on track to be an Olympic swimmer and she quit swimming because she was being repeatedly sexually harassed by one of the boys in her swim team. And no one cared and the coach told her that she needed to basically suck it up for the team... You know, she was painted as a troublemaker and this is the other thing as well, that women who speak out about uh, the violence that they experience, uh, particularly at the hands of their peers, are making it up or they're troublemakers or, my favourite, they're attention seekers. You get such wonderful attention from speaking out about sexual assault, don't you? Um, Absolutely. Anyway, this young girl, ultimately, she was becoming more and more distressed and um, mentally unwell because of the experiences that she was being subjected to that a boy and that the boys, the people around him supporting him were choosing to subject her to, uh, that she quit. And she said in this piece that she wants to know what would happen if society made women a fucking big deal. If we decided that our lives were worth enough to be defended and protected from the kind of behaviour that forces us to, to exit from the tracks that we, we were on or that we placed ourselves on or that we showed success in because it became apparent and clear to us that no one would, no one would make those places safe for us. So so that was the second thing that I thought and then the, the third and final thing that kind of really broke my heart was that this person's question wasn't even really about those things. It was how do I learn not to be let down it was an almost mm-hmm. acceptance of the inevitability of these circumstances and these realities for women, which, you know, these they are true realities, but I cannot express to you how angry and how deeply sad I am that a 17-year-old young woman who's barely begun her life has already had it made clear to her that there are people who – have decided she doesn't matter and her safety doesn't matter and how does she just not care about that? And I think that one of the, um, you know, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this too, one of the most heartbreaking things about being a woman and about being a feminist has been coming to the realisation that a lot of people just don't care they just don't care and that men will let you down. Even the men that you're told care about you and that you, uh, you know, you choose to be friends with and you choose to love, you choose to give of yourself to will demonstrate or are capable of demonstrating to you how very deeply they do not respect you in the same way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. And I would add that I think the, defining characteristic that sort of separates um, men that I have interacted with in productive ways in feminism um, that sets them apart from their peers is a willingness to acknowledge that they have in many ways and in many instances without maybe intention, but certainly in still so doing completely not only just deprioritized, but, like, dismissed the harm that was inflicted upon women um, because it was not something that was front and center f- is, some- is something they were experiencing. But even more than that, I mean, there are lots of issues that we are not currently experiencing that we still care about. You know, people, like, how many fucking 5Ks do we walk every year for cancer? Like, I, I mean, it, as we should. But like you can motivate people to care about harm to other people. it happens all the time, rightly so. but for some reason when you start talking about harm to women, there is something about that that is incredibly taboo and very isolating if you are a person who decides to go ahead and become a feminist uh, anyway. And I would say that you know I think you would probably agree with this Clem I it wasn't until I decided that I couldn't let other people define my value mm. that I was able to be a feminist in fulsome because otherwise I think I would be destroyed all the time because the, the, there is a constant, never-ending, nonstop and aggressive effort to tell you how fucking awful you are for taking this perspective in life and i mean just the the level of animosity is incredible Mm -hmm. um that that we receive and so you have to basically say i am willing to to separate what at one time was important to me which was the way other people perceive me because i'm a human being and and it matters to human beings how they are perceived because if i continue to put value in that, um, I, I will not be able to cope. And, and there is a, a line there where you have to say, I have to care enough that I, I don't, uh, dismiss criticism that is good and realistic and from a good place, but not enough that criticism that is not from a good place is something that affects me as an individual.
1: I agree, one hundred percent. Definitely, um, it's a. There's a. It's a double-edged sword because there's a freedom and an absolute liberation in being able to reach that point, and truly feeling like I I have no fear about saying my truth and about speaking up for what I believe to be right because I've I've been I've been hit with so much toxicity and so much you know, aggressive descriptions of violence that ought to be done to me or, you know, the gaslighting that women in particular experience, um, the attempts to, you know, render me crazy and, you know, mentally unwell and deranged and all of these things that men in particular love to screech at us uh, when we dare to point out the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Um, there's, a, You know, you can only experience so much of that before you... It just becomes noise and um, you kind of rise above it and it almost fortifies you in a way. but but I think that there's a terrible sadness that this is what this is the trade-off that you make that you think, well for me to live an authentic, truthful ex- existence where I I have integrity and where I speak up um, for what I know to be right and where I and also where I represent that I love myself, you know that I I have, care and love for myself and part of having care and love for myself is saying that I deserve to be treated with respect and I will not tolerate this that the inevitable trade-off for that in the society that we currently live in is that you also have to accept this level of abuse Um, and I understand that for a lot of women it's a bridge too far or it's something that they they aren't willing to well, they don't know how they can possibly endure it day in and day out, and uh, and I understand that completely. One of the things that I would say that has made a huge difference for me, and again, I think that you'd probably agree with this as well, is in speaking out and in becoming that kind of person who is unafraid. You are able to not only galvanize women around you, but you're really able to join forces with them, and. Mm-hmm. Patriarchy thrives and survives in part because it has always taught men the benefit of brotherhood, and it's always taught women that they need to divide themselves. So we've been kept away from each other, which again sort of goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about in regards of uh, in regards to female politicians that we've always been encouraged to um, reassure everyone around us that we don't, you know, we're not in some kind of secret coven, you know, some cabal of women that are really just. uh, Um, working together to you know collude and destroy the opportunities for the men it's always been completely acceptable for men to work together Um, it's the baseline it's it's not even a thing of like no one would even consciously say oh well men are consciously working together because it's just assumed that that's the correct course of action but women who Mm -hmm. work together or even just collaborate in a in a collegiate sense or uh, you know operate in a space that says well you know like occasionally we might need to have a women's only space so that we can just talk to each other is seen as somehow being aggressive and violent and we're excluding men from whatever trickery we might be up to it's suspicious so that's right well you know, it's,
0: it's it's either aggressive and violent or it's frivolous
1: yeah exactly Exactly. Well, and that's the other thing as well, is that we're taught to aspire to all of these ways of looking and being. But when we express enjoyment of them, we're also frivolous and ridiculous. Um, so I think that in in terms of this person's question, um, acknowledging the heartbreak of that realisation is is important. Um, there's no easy answer to it either. In fact, with so many of the questions that get submitted to this podcast, there's never an easy answer. And, and a lot of times, you know, navigating that is uh, is difficult. But one of the things that makes it so much easier to bear is the realization that there are women there waiting for you. And part of transitioning into being that fulsome public, you know, publicly unafraid feminist that you were talking about is that it signals to other women that they can join you, and and it breaks down a lot of that division that we've been so conditioned into growing up you know the suspicions that we've had of other women or the fear that we've had of aligning ourselves too strongly with them and for me having a strong and solid group of women around me has always made dealing with the inevitable disappointment of men and their um, lack of support from women to be much easier to bear
0: yeah I mean I think it is completely true that one of the main ways that we have been taught to keep ourselves isolated and keep our feelings as a almost undefeatable obstacle is that we are taught that sharing them with one another is either traitorous or overblown or silly or overly emotional. Mm. Um, and so the idea of women interacting with one another, talking about their experiences, just in saying it now, I can hear the satire dripping from the mouths of, of men who would repeat those same sentences. And that is 100% just a general sentiment of patriarchy that you can't you can't want to, feel your feelings. You can't want to say this is harmful and hurtful and what you're doing is not okay. Now you can do it in some circumstances. Certainly you can do it if it is something that would potentially affect men's ability to continue operating the way that they are. You have Christine Blasey Ford, I'm sure you know very well, um, people asserting their rights to feel their feelings. But I think you're exactly right. that There's something about knowing that someone's on the other side, and I'll take this this opportunity to say that that Clementine was on the other side for me in many ways as a mentor uh, over the last few years in quelling my insecurities and being there for conversations with me about navigating uh, the world of being a feminist in a public forum but the thing I always say, there's there's this sort of person online who comes into your mentions and says, I'm a woman and I think everything you're saying is bullshit. Mm. And it's perceived as sort of this like trump card, right? Like, what are you gonna say to that? Huh? Like what how how are you gonna respond to that? And and my response is always the same. And it's just listen, sis, when you need us, yep. we'll be here for you.
1: Yep. I just got chills so true. It's so true. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, why don't you attack anti-feminist women the way that you attack anti-feminist men? And I always say because I know that the motivations for both are completely different. And mm-hmm. anti-feminist women, as hateful as they can be and as frustrating as they can be, their reasons for being that way are completely different. They're, they're, they've chosen a path to navigate patriarchy in a way that feels right for them right now and exactly as you say, when they wake up and realise that no amount of being the best girl on the block will ever get men to care about them in the way that they've been taught to care about them in return, um, we'll be there waiting for them. Yeah, and no hard feelings. (laughs) Yep. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. Please, if you like it, then consider rating and reviewing it because it definitely helps. And you can send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com or contact me directly on Instagram at clementine underscore Ford. And if you have enjoyed the podcast and you would like to support the ongoing making of it, you can also go to my Patreon, which is just uh, forward slash Clementine Ford. Emraz, you are brilliant and uh, fiery. And I had so many synapses going off in my brain listening to you then. And I really appreciate the, the time that you've taken to spend with me and the listeners today. And I know that. So many of them are going to be like furiously writing notes and re-listening to this to get down all of the genius of the things that you've said. And what I want to know is when are you writing a fucking book?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I, I will say I, my my answer is often uh, that when I feel as though something I say is new or original, um, I think I'll put it into a book, but um, for the moment, I'm just trying to condense the work of people like you and, and a million other feminists out there who have been putting up the good fight uh, for centuries now and making it accessible for everyone in, in bite sizes.
1: Well, if people do want to join your particular branch of the club, and they absolutely should, they can join your ever expanding group of followers on Twitter um, at Mraz E-M-R-A-Z-Z um, or z for American listeners and uh, they can uh, have all of those wonderful nuggets succinctly distilled into bite-sized tweets for them to go, yes, yes, see this is what I meant M, I think you're so fabulous and I'm so glad that we connected um, just a few years ago now and that we can be in the feminist club together because it really fucking helps having incredibly smart women like you um, out there in a way that reminds women like me that we're all in this together and that we can make a difference if we just keep trying, just keep swimming.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it goes without saying that uh, friendships like the one that we have are totally invaluable to me. And, and I will add as my shameless plug to anyone who's listening because they follow me on Twitter, um, please, please read fight like a girl and boys Lee boys by Clementine Board. They are amazing. And you'll read a lot of me in them because it comes from her.
1: You're amazing. I love you. And thank you so much for that, because I would also love your listeners, uh, your followers to buy <laughs> my book. I'm a writer. Um, You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad.
0: High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.